Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Good day, Cameron. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Jonathan. Good to be back and talking with you again in 2023. Yeah, it's it's great to be back. Uh, I'm hoping we have a, many more interesting conversations. So I've I've been intrigued ever since I did my honors thesis a million years ago on green political thought and and environmental politics on the idea of growth, economic growth. Is it something we should have? Is it something we can have? Uh, and I began began to wonder during the course of last year. I wonder is Cameron Murray a degrowth type of guy? Like you're a left wing economist, I would say, but you're you're quite heterodox in your views and. Like it's it's certainly a, a very a sort of very left wing conventional view to have that economic growth makes no sense. It's illogical. We can't have continuous, you know, endless economic growth because we live on a finite planet. And it's a, a sort of a very conventional view on the left to say now that it's it's not something we want um, because GDP economic growth doesn't measure human well-being in any sense. And you can you know the usual thing that's said is you can have an oil spill and that improves GDP. Mm. Um, so I'm curious, you don't strike me as being a degrowther, but at the same time, you have been involved a lot in your academic life in green thought, and you've also been involved in, in the Greens as a political party. So tell me about your take on growth. Yeah, well, I think you're totally right, um, Jonathan, that I've been on a bit of a journey intellectually on on this topic, and I think I, I probably started with the, the more naive view that Geez, every time we seem to grow, it involves um, bulldozing some kind of uh, forest or agricultural area to build more roads and houses and buildings, or um, you know, reclaiming more of the what we'd call natural earth for mining or farming or whatever the case may be. So I think I started with the intuitive take that many do that maybe this process that we're doing we should halt it because I actually like living in a world where we have a lot of you know uh, rainforest and uh, clean oceans with uh, all the sort of untouched species that are there so um, that's where I started but I think my my views have evolved quite a lot on this topic and I guess the first thing maybe we should start with is is what do we mean by growth because I think um yeah, that's there, a good point to a start lot, <laughs> isn't it because um, a lot of the time what we mean by growth is environmental degradation right and then the, the question is um it, it's not about growth per se it's about environmental degradation and the assumption being that these are, are, are tied at the hip that you can't get economic growth without bulldozing things and 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 you know destroying species and habitats and what whatever i think though that it's not specifically the case that that's true and the the word we use in this sort of academic debates about this is called decoupling can you decouple uh, economic activity from for example using more land for farming um and and you can and can you decouple economic growth from greenhouse gas emissions and and you can do that too uh, by using different fuel types. Um, so the question then is whether we can, whether what we're doing in these isolated cases of using less land for agriculture and still getting growth, 
or reducing carbon dioxide emissions is are we just substituting land for minerals are we digging deeper holes elsewhere or you know um, extracting oil from from the oceans instead you know is there a way to absolutely decouple and i think my where i've got to and i don't know what you think of this answer was where i've gotten to is it doesn't matter (laughs) why doesn't it matter let me me try and explain i see the world now more as um the process of growth and innovation and trying to do more with less is sort of inbuilt it's inbuilt in our species just like if i um had an ant farm and I just kept feeding it and 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 it it would grow and populate to fill up the the sort of the earth that I created for it. So I think growth is it's not something you can stop. It's just a inevitable process of humans organizing to do things better for themselves. Where I've got to is that I think we should be thinking not about growth versus degrowth, but just about being uh, responsible resource managers and then letting the process of growth happening within those sort of resource management rules we come up with and I think that's a little bit of a an Eleanor Ostrom take if anyone's if wants to google Eleanor Ostrom uh, an economist who was really into how do human societies organize together to manage resources um And she basically said, through trial and error, humans are actually quite good when they face resource constraints and coming up with um, sets of rules where they can cooperate. And some of her examples were fisheries, fishing certain lakes. There's a limit to how many fish you can get out. And so um, what you do is you come up with rules to manage that. And so what you do is you sustain those fish populations. You, You harvest them each year in a sustainable way. And at the same time, the whatever human process is going on to grow can grow within that limit and that limit happens because we've managed that resource and so i think if if we think about land use in general well we can protect certain lands for um, wildlife populations we can protect certain lands for others and in those in, in the lands we don't protect we can use them to the best of our ability and as long as we're doing that resource management task well I don't think, you know, we, we either get growth or we don't get growth or we get whatever outcome we get. So that's the sort of view I've come from is that we can talk about um, whether, you know, growth is associated with resource use and whether we can decouple or whatnot. And I sort of walk, walk through the logic and the evidence and get to the point where, well, if we just manage the resources we care about, we want clean air we come up with rules about that if we want to manage fish populations we come up with that if we want to manage land use we come up with rules about that and once we've done that none of the rest really matters whether you can decouple or not because you're living within these agreed upon improved constraints that protect the environmental things that you care about so that's yeah yeah. that's very clear but what i'm thinking when i hear that is well that's very clear theoretically but politically in the capitalist world system that's never going to happen because what that requires is it requires at a political level um certain enterprises to be told not your band because you use resources and and and, you know we're going to prefer 
other enterprises that do some other productive process that doesn't use these resources and um, I don't see any evidence that we have a political system that's uh, able to do that yeah, within, our, look, within the capitalist economic system because vested interests rule and, you know. Um, yeah, but, you, you know, happen. vested interests arise in new industries as well. Um, what's a good example? Uh, so, for example, we banned uranium, uh, we banned nuclear power and we've limited new uranium mining in Australia. So that's a sort of limit we have i think two or three jabaluka um what's the one in south australia olympic um and a couple of other uranium mines but we've sort of banned new expansion and uh, we've banned nuclear power so there's an example of where we've sort of come up with a rule and said here's a line in the sand now i don't necessarily agree with um australia's approach to nuclear power and uranium but that's one example. We've done, for example, in Queensland, we have E10 in the fuel. So we add ethanol from grains and sugar as a way to sort of limit um, whatever, yeah, limit fuel use by 10% by replacing with biofuels. Now, I'm not clear that that's a good thing either, but it's a rule we came up with um, to to attempt to limit ourselves in terms of resource use. So, uh, you know, we also have rules about um, uh, restoring mine sites and things like that. So, um, look, we we kind of, we do do it Hmm. um, to some degree. So I'm not, I'm not as pessimistic about that as you are. And and as you can see from the size of the green movement, I mean, the green movement is a rich country movement, right? So, Mm -hmm. so a related discussion that i'm interested in is the one that you know started with the famous bet between the biologist paul ehrlich and this economist guy julian simon but then it's become sort of a one of these very standard arguments that Mm -hmm. economists use to berate anyone who has an environmental angle on things and that's basically that we as humans are very clever. We come up with alternatives. So to say that there's going to be, um, you know, an absolute limit to X resource, whether it's oil or fisheries mm-hmm. or whatever or some mineral, that's that's wrong. We are very clever. We come up with alternatives. We we innovate, and so any prediction about any the exhaustion of any particular resource that can't be replaced is wrong. It's always going to be wrong. And, and 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 so on so and i always find the economist's argument to be unsatisfying because is a there is magical thinking there because what they're saying is well we've always done x in the past and therefore we will always be able to do x in the future without considering the fact that we, we do have a finite planet with a finite specific number of physical elements and chemical you know components mm. and, and and you know there's the idea that there is this infinite um universe of endlessly um substitutable you know chemicals and minerals and whatever seems to me to be fairy tale logic and not sort of (laughs) acknowledging there's a physical basis to um to our reality so i mean of course it may be the case that such limits only arise a very long time in the future but it's still an unsatisfying argument in theory yeah um 
Uh, I guess I have a slightly different view, but maybe it's worth um, explaining. Um, I think you mentioned the the wager between Paul Ehrlich and Julian Simon. I think it was a bit was about oil prices being a lot higher at a particular date, nineteen eighty. It was a bet in nineteen eighty that um, in the year two thousand, um, Ehrlich said all these resources will become very expensive because you know they are finite in nature, a bundle of resources. And Julian Simon said, no, I think. Um, they will be cheaper. And I think the resources were copper, nickel, tin, and tungsten, right? Mined resources that aren't super abundant. Um, so apparently 20, 1990 was the payoff date. And between 1980 and 1990, the price of all those uh, minerals had declined. So Ehrlich essentially lost the wager. And you know his argument for why the price of these resources would rise is, is essentially what you were saying, that um, the world's finite, and as we start depleting things, um, they'll become more scarce and they'll go up in price. Um, and Julian Simon said the opposite. He said, well, actually, as we become more productive, um, it makes scarce resources easier to access because we have great new machines and they're very efficient at digging, and hence the, the price uh, will fall instead even though they look scarce today because they're difficult to get to, um, you know, their, their physical scarceness is not the issue. The The scarcity issue is how economical they are to access and relocate from under the earth to a train or a truck or a ship to somewhere where we're going to actually do something with them. And I think that's, I guess, um, my view is more that, Yes, okay, the world's finite, particularly in, in space, but uh, you know, economic growth is, is more about the pace at which we sort of move things around on the Earth, where we move the molecules from one place to the other. And with enough energy, we can move molecules quickly back and forth and get growth and do things that have value. We can commute faster, we can deliver faster, we can refine materials more quickly with fewer humans and i don't think the physical size of the earth is is currently the constraint on what we're doing i think the our technical ability and our efficiency is is the constraint so just the fact that the earth is finite i think we're a long way from that being a constraint we're still at the we're not very good at um moving materials cheaply and efficiently and that's what the constraint is on growth uh if that makes sense yes so yeah. i think that's yeah. the big difference in that wager um and why i think some environmentalists are a little bit you know um they're sort of thinking somehow that um you know the physical constraint will bite soon and then it'll all be over but we're so far from that because we have these economic limits um, that that we're pushing up against, not okay. physical limits. Mm. All right. And another argument that I have trouble with is when um, those who are on the right uh, or economically neoliberal say stuff like, well, the best thing we can do for the environment is to allow everyone to get rich quickly because rich countries and rich people care about the environment and improve their environment. And I find that unsatisfying because that's not how the capital the world the capitalist world economic system works. Not every country 
in the capitalist world system can be like Switzerland. To, for Brazil, let's say, to get rich, they're going to cut down the rainforest to plant cash crops to earn money on the international market because they don't have the 500-year uh, built-in advantage of um, yeah. a, a northern European country in producing machinery and high-value leading-edge goods in the world economy. So yeah. in getting rich, they're doing the opposite. They're, they're, they have to do the opposite of what that argument says. They have to destroy the environment. Um, yeah. So once they've done that and gotten rich, well, where are they? They're still going to be at the bottom of the world economic system, but they will have destroyed their environment. Um, so... Yeah. It's sort of, so there's so a bit I'm, of a yeah. contradiction, you think, that, um, you know, getting rich quick to save the environment is, is not how it's going to play out in a lot of places. Yeah, and the idea that, like, everyone can have an economy like Switzerland doesn't make sense. Someone's yeah. got to do the dirty manufacturing. Someone's got to do the um, the digging of the minerals out of the ground and the, the, the planting yeah. of cocoa and palm oil or whatever you know yeah so i think what you're see there's a few i think important concepts that you've covered there mm -hmm. um the at the end you just sort of mentioned someone's got to yeah grow things and dig things up right and the fact that switzerland can be rich without having to um grow things and dig too many things up and you know, essentially um trade gold with each other um, yeah uh you know it doesn't mean everyone can do it someone's still got to dig things up and and hide the money and, of the dictators yeah. who are digging up the stuff and yeah so you know we call that sort of um the displacement effect whereby uh rich countries uh sort of clean up their environment uh when they get rich by essentially offshoring uh the dirty things that they used to do by relocating them if you think about london for example london you know 150 years ago in the in the 19th century was dirty and polluted you know the charles dickens london was was a terrible place to be because everyone was burning coal and manufacturing things and there was layers of soot all across the city how did they improve their air and environment well they just essentially relocated where those things get made but it's not just that it's that um, we 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 don't burn coal with so much soot anymore, right? We can clean clean the the big particles a lot better than we used to, and so you know this um, displacement effect is definitely one thing, and and that debate um, happens a lot when people talk about a thing called the environmental Kuznets curve. So <laughs> let me just explain that. That's essentially yeah. the observation that what you say is true, that rich countries start cleaning up their environment. And Simon Kuznets was a Nobel Prize economist and won the Nobel Prize in 1971 for noting that essentially countries, as they get rich, they get more unequal before they get more equal as they get richer in terms of income inequality. And the environmental sort of economists have said, well, actually, that curve of uh, having more polluting and dirty industries uh, happens as countries get rich and then they get even richer and then they start cleaning up their environment with higher environmental standards and they don't let people dump things in rivers anymore and they 
they improve all those outcomes. And that argument about displacement is how much is that environmental Kuznets curve due to relocating manufacturing to China or India or wherever, uh, rather than actual um, improvements that anybody could make while maintaining the same standard of living. Mm -hmm. And I think it's clearly a little bit of both, but you will find that um, in places in central Europe where people say we go there for the natural beauty and the mountains and the this and that, there's still coal mining, there's still manufacturing, there's still a lot of minerals mining. It's just that they really have improved the environmental cost of that. They've decoupled. They mine with clean, cleaner machines, with better processes, with different uh, chemicals and solvents to sort of um, process the ores. And it really does... Um, it really does improve things so i think the question of brazil takes me back to my first point of well at the end of the day we need to manage land and brazil can bulldoze the forest and farm it and mm -hmm. then maybe in 50 or 100 years replant the forest or let it grow or buy back certain lands and cross their fingers that you know, the Amazon regrows, mm -hmm. which is one possibility, or they can essentially draw lines on a map and say, okay, um, we think, you know, as in our role domestically and as part of the world, these are the areas we're going to preserve. These are the areas you can log. This is how you can log the, the methods you can use that we think improve the area for habitat. You know, in, in the Scandinavian countries, they're huge timber suppliers. Yep for the world but they do that now not by clearing the forest but by selective logging so they have i don't it's it's a great bit of entertainment if you go on youtube and you can see the machines they use to pick certain trees and gather them up without having to bulldoze the whole lot right. um, so i think those things are possible so i think uh, on the whole i do think every country can have clean air and clean water and be rich okay it's not the easy way to do it that's for sure right it's much cheaper and more effective for india and china to get old technology you know coal and diesel powered equipment and use old techniques uh -huh. um, but i don't think it's impossible um, for everybody you know in society and if you, all the humans on earth to live a current first world um a first world lifestyle with a first world environment mm. I, I i do now think that's possible i don't i did not think it was possible maybe 15 years ago uh -huh. uh, but i've been convinced that it is interesting <laughs> interesting no no that's interesting i i just always come back to there's a reason why these very um common you know apparently common sense and possible things don't happen in our system and they they don't happen because the our, our system just has certain built-in characteristics of where political elites have certain, you know, have certain interests not to basically to line their own pockets those, in, yeah, essentially yeah. line their own pockets in the quickest way possible. So that if that means doing things the dirty, nasty way, that's what's going to happen. And that's what the evidence shows is happening. 
Um, so I yeah. think you make a good point, Jonathan, that um, a lot of things that are technically possible are difficult politically because the there are competing financial interests. And certainly if I was a farmer in Brazil adjacent to the Amazon rainforest and I could just drive my bulldozer next door, push those trees out of the way, sell all the timber and then use the soil to grow whatever palm oil or whatever the case, whatever cash crop I'm growing, I would have a huge financial interest to do that, right? And, um, and I'm so probably I, a local politician as well. <laughs> so I get that. And, and I think that's, the, that's one of the arguments that, you know, you need to get rich so that you can have a green movement to, to negotiate politically. Like mm. that's, you know, there's a grain of truth in that. And, and that happens a lot. Um, I know uh, I did I did some research on on trophy hunting in in seven African countries um, <laughs> a, a while back, and that's one of the big arguments there is that well these these animals and this wildlife is our resource. Who are you, rich country, to tell us not to get rich using our resources? Can we please get rich first? What it's very expensive for us to um to monitor you know elephant and lion habitats <laughs> yeah. uh, it's very expensive when lions attack villages or elephants stampede through villages and yet this is the you know the green outcome is something that you want you you know rich world not something we want us locals yeah. um so i think that is the that is the sort of limit, I think. I don't think there's a physical, technical constraint. So you've shifted quite significantly from a sort of a conventional green mm-hmm. uh, green political thought to actually thinking that most of the conventional tenets of green political thought are probably not true. Well, I think I think they're not. Um, they 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 they're still at the problem definition stage. Let me say, okay. so they're very much. I see growth. I see this, but I see these associated negatives, and therefore I blame the process of growth. And I and I get it. Yeah, you know, you can grow in many different ways. You can bulldoze the Amazon, or you can dig it up. Like you can, you know, you can grow crops there. You can dig a hole, or you can do ecotourism, or you can do whatever. Right? Yep. There's a lot of. Um, ways to manage that resource and that's why i think you know the problem's ill-defined when we say our oh, growth is bad we need to degrowth if you keep digging and asking that why question like why is growth bad oh because of this okay why is that bad oh because of this at the end of the day you end up with some kind of resource management problem oh we're bulldozing the rainforest oh okay so if we protected the rainforest that would be good but Again, even if we protect it, put a fence around it, we probably still need to manage it. You know, weeds might get in there, you know, um, we might want to manage it for tourism. We might want to actively be involved. Um, at, at the end of the day, all sort of environmental questions for me come back to resource management. You worry about fish? Okay, let's manage fisheries. You worry about land use? Manage this. You worry about mining and the big holes in the ground? okay require a certain type of remediation and if you know and then if miners think they can't afford the remediation uh, then we we can't afford yet those minerals but maybe in the future when those minerals are more valuable we can dig them up and that can we can afford the remediation you know bulldozing that topsoil and replanting and 
you know, there's a lot of former quarries that are, you know, swimming holes and fishing holes and people's favorite environmental green weekend getaway. Well, these used to be quarries, right? Mm. <laughs> these used to be big holes in the ground, but now they're sort of environmental um you know icons in a way so i think that's that's yeah i've changed a lot with many of these issues you could have an environmental argument saying but by the time you do that the earth's ecology is totally stuffed and your plans to replant and all that is all theoretical because we've had famines and disasters and we don't have the like in other words like the end of industrial civilization is brought about by um you know, in the process, like, yeah, that's probably oh, the well, catastrophizing. I think that's, yeah, that's the doomsayer catastrophizing argument. And I just think we're so, as I said, the, the, the economic constraint on our ability to use minerals and things and the earth is, is, is what we're butting up against. We are not at a physical uh, no, but if we, you have like a runaway greenhouse effect because like the methane's been, you know, released oh. from the Arctic tundra or something and, and all your plans go out the window because the world is in geopolitical chaos. <laughs> yeah, look, I just don't think that that's likely. Look, okay. I, well, I think we've got a, an orders of magnitude issue going on here. So for firstly, the orders of magnitude issue is, the, you know, the limit we're facing in terms of using resources is the economic limit. You know, we can dig deeper holes. We can, um, you know, mine other things underground. We just, you know, the limit is is not that there's not stuff on the earth for us to get and use. It's that um, it's the economic constraint, which is orders of magnitude closer to reality than the physical strength, constraint. And I think that's true also on the, you know, the climate doom yeah i think if we can um clean the earth's air yeah i'm all for it but i think climate change is a little bit of a second or third order environmental issue for me you know there's a there's a lot of people in a lot of tropical places who are apparently gonna be on the receiving end who'd rather just be rich <laughs> right <laughs> um, okay you know what i mean yeah. and also the orders of magnitude thing you know, climate the climate's changing but it's changing very slowly even if we're accelerating it, everything is about, oh, the end of this century. Think about the world between 1900 and 2000. Think about right. the changes in the world and tell me that, oh, had the, had the um, earth temperature risen four degrees from 1900 to 2000, that that would have been a catastrophe. I just don't yeah. see it. And yet, it, and, and again, the orders of magnitude issue here is that humans... Um, adapt and invest at a much more rapid rate than what the climate can change, right? Even a very long-lived building is going to be replaced before the earth is two or three degrees warmer, mm. right? All the infrastructure we have today will be probably replaced and rebuilt in the yeah. next century, right? And so the question is, oh, you know, um, People are going to be hot. This, whatever the argument is, oh, these we need to adapt. I'm like, oh, we're going to automatically adapt because all the things we've built have to be replaced and upgraded along the way. And we're not just going to you know, ignore the fact if the climate's changed or the rainfall's changing, that we're not going to ignore that on the way. So I think that's a sort of another orders of magnitude issue that you know, we, we forget how quickly humans invest 
uh, and adapt okay. to how slowly the climate changes. No, oh, you're making me feel better. Yeah, yeah. I look, I'm pretty optimistic. I think you know, I I definitely support a lot of rules to protect the environment domestically. I definitely support rules on um, uh, keeping the beaches clean and the the waterways clean and land use land use regulations within waterways catchments. So you know, things don't just get washed off the land into our water. Like those things make sense to me. And those are the practical, doable things I think you know, environmentalists should concern themselves with and, and traditionally did. Whereas this slow moving sort of what if we reach the you know, physical limits of the earth or what if the, the temperature changes, those just to me are, are not relevant to the mm-hmm. sort of timeframes and the meaningfuls yep. of people's lives and the meaningful sort of proximity to people's lives like yeah um, yeah yeah it's the it's the immediate thing oh i live in a place where i can swim in the river oh i live in a place where i can hear the birds or i can experience this or yeah um, and just yeah exactly and just to wind up i think a lot of perhaps resistance maybe from uh environmental activists to the sort of thing you're saying is that they actually just for social reasons for value reasons just you know philosophical reasons they want to live in the kind of world that they think would be brought about by all these changes that they want. In other words, they want to live in a kind of a small yeah. villagey type of world, like maybe with some pre-industrial characteristics. But that's um, that's actually a value judgment uh, about yeah. what is a good life rather than a resource management constraint. I, I, I think you're right. There's definitely a social element to it, and I definitely, you know, I, I've been through this, uh, as I've said in the last sort of 15 or 20 years i've i've been through it okay i really care about the environment how do i do something okay join these sort of movements and and you sort of um you want to believe that the the worst case story to really um arm your side with its best argument you know what i mean um yeah. you know if if the climate's a catastrophe then you know it, it makes sense to make that small incremental improvement in some environmental outcome yeah. Well, um, I say, what a great place to end. Thanks very much, Cameron. What a stimulating discussion. And uh, see yeah, you well, next uh, week. Yeah, I hope our listeners, uh, you know, get, get thinking as always. And yeah, great to have another chat, Jonathan. Talk to you soon. Yeah.